Back empowers you to get it together with a single digital wallet. Use Back to aggregate, convert, send, and spend digital assets like crypto, loyalty and rewards points, and gift cards. Get started by downloading the Back app today and treat your digital assets just like cash. And I also want to give a shout out to Kraken. With Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or even earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chapar, Director of News at The Block, and we're joined by basically the gigabrains behind our operation. He would never say that. He's too humble. But Mika, here he is, one of our research analysts, and we're going to unpack, like we've been unpacking, Uniswap V3 on this episode of the show. Um, we, we had to kind of keep it close to the chest. So Mika was one of the few folks on the team that, you know, was privy to uh, the confidential information just so that we could all like have um, an understanding of the important intricate aspects of the plan. But I remember, I think the first night you got it, you, you couldn't, you didn't sleep that entire night, right? I think you were so stoked about it. Yeah. You didn't, we were, you didn't sleep. We were discussing it quite a bit and, and I think, it was one of those things that, like Uniswap V3 design, sort of. I think that's a good part is that it's it's actually quite simple, uh, but it's sort of really obvious in a way that this was really the only direction to go with the design. Uh, I think we'll talk a bit more about that, but yeah, it was obviously exciting just reading it for the first time. You said to me during the sort of writing process that you wish you had thought of it yourself. Let's focus first on when we think about what exactly v3 was supposed to achieve the problems it was supposed to solve what exactly were those issues and problems i mean if we're going to put it simply is it just about capital efficiency but for folks who are maybe unfamiliar what exactly does that that mean so i think uniswap made this very basically the decision they made is to go from passive market making to active market making and maybe to understand that i can unpack a little bit about how AMMs sort of fundamentally work. And yeah. I think the easiest way to understand an AMM instead of like a traditional exchange where you have an order book where there are buyers and sellers and order sort of executes when those buyers and sellers meets in the middle. An AMM really, you can think of it like having two different jars. And in one jar, you have like Ethereum and in the other jar, so let's say US dollars or USDC. And if you want to buy Ethereum on an AMM, you sort of have to take some of the Ethereum out from the Ethereum jar, but you also have to put into the other jar sort of an equivalent amount of US dollars. And when you do this, the jars can, because Uniswap sort of has to always be able to provide liquidity, the jars can sort of never be empty. So you're mm -hmm. moving between, like you have these uh, pools of, or these jars of, uh, Ethereum and USD, and you're just like moving between zero and infinity between the two of them when the prices move. So that's like uh, this movement between zero and infinity is what sort of separates AMMs from order books. And when you're providing liquidity, 
you're just putting your assets into those two jars. And uh, if you're sort of losing money, you're making money from traders because you're getting trading fees, but you're losing money because uh, you sort of own both of the assets. And if Ethereum goes up, that means more, more people are taking Ethereum out of the pool and sort of the thing you own, uh, because you own a share of both of those jars, you're owning more and more US dollars all the time. So there's calling permanent loss and it's like a feature of this passive market making style. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the problem with there is the capital efficiency, which is that you're providing this liquidity from zero to infinity. So you basically have a lot of liquidity that's not being used because the current price is somewhere in between, but your liquidity is spread out throughout this entire uh, area. And mm-hmm. an order book is basically the inverse of that, where when you match orders, you do it at like a specific point. So if one side of the equation is like from zero to infinity, the other side is sort of a specific point. Uh, somewhere in the middle. And what Uniswap V3 does essentially is that from zero to infinity and all the different strategies in between zero and infinity and the specific point, you can now execute any one of those strategies on the way. And that's essentially what the Uniswap custom liquidity range provides. And it provides capital efficiency because basically now you're able to direct more of your capital towards the area uh, that's being traded at. And that's kind of at the heart of this upgrade is the ability to focus your capital, for lack of a better word, on just one small range. We're talking less of a basis point. So now you're you're a liquidity provider, you're putting liquidity into the system. And instead of having to sort of disperse that across an infinite range, right? You can zero in on specific prices that you think Ethereum is going to trade at. And the capital you would be using to provide liquidity Across an infinite range, you can then double down onto one specific price range, or you can use those funds to do a number of other things, hedge or just make bets in other places. What was the reaction from the community about this specific aspect of V3? Was it what folks were expecting? And I know it can get pretty complicated, but what maybe took so long for us to get here? I think the reaction mostly is that if you think uh, that the sort of the ultimate way for automated market makers to go is to become this hybrid between the uh, basic AMM strategy and then like these order book like strategies, then this sort of perfectly fits uh, what you think Uniswap's next evolution should be. Because now you basically are able to do every single strategy in between the zero and infinity and this sort of limit order type of discrete point. And I think people who approached it from uh, that perspective are sort of very happy with it uh, because now you they think of it as getting uh, the best of both worlds. I think uh, the type of negative reaction uh, maybe to this is coming from the fact that people who really liked having this passive market-making strategy that everyone would basically agree to the same strategy where they would provide liquidity between zero and infinity And that was what made AMMs unique. And for them, they think there's still some advantages to doing only that and moving towards the order book model. They don't really understand maybe what's the cool thing about that. Then it's just like an order book. So I think our reactions also sort of range just as much as the custom liquidity ranges that you're able to do on Uniswap provides Mm -hmm. for like the very same reasons. There's uh, just as many ranges as there are opinions, it seems. There are also um, a number of other different 
feature upgrades or feature changes that are included in V3. There's different fee tiers. There's, you know, they made some changes to the way that their oracles work. Outside of this customized liquidity aspect, what are some of the other features that you think stand out or are the most striking? Uh, most of the trading features and sort of the interesting activity that happens around there and the arguments you can have actually comes from just this one custom liquidity feature because mm-hmm. of how it's being applied. So maybe before we get into a bit more on that, just the other features uh, that are interesting to know that are coming are these customized fee tiers. So instead of having 0.3% fee on every trade, you have 005 0.0, uh, 0.3, and 1% as the three different tiered options. Uh, this is actually a sort of an obvious improvement in a way because in crypto, you have markets where the fee can be lower because the volatility is also lower because the fee uh, always compensates for the volatility to the market makers. So uh, this is like stable coin to stable coin swaps and that sort of thing. So it's obvious that the fee can be very much lower there. The 0.3% fee has actually worked very well in Uniswap V2 and is sort of a right balance in many ways for liquidity providers in most markets. And then you have this extra 1% uh, version as well, which it's hard to say how useful it will be. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but you can theoretically use it for to bootstrap markets that have really high volatility to be paid back more. But I think the more important one is the 0.05 one because it lets you do low volatility pairs uh, very efficiently uh, where the slippage is so small that the actual fee being 0.3% is already massive. So it makes sense to put that down a bit. Uh, So that's one feature. Another one is uh, just these improvements to uh, the Oracle. Basically, I think for most, these are just, you can think of them as like engineering improvements that make Uniswap as an, as an Oracle that you can take a price feed from a bit more efficient and sort of safer to use. Uh, so those are like the two things. But I think uh, how the custom liquidity ranges are applied, that really, and maybe the last one too, before we jump into that is like also the L2 aspect, which is that it's expected that uh, V3 will launch also on optimism. It's sort of a you can think of it like as a competing version of the Uniswap protocol yeah. on layer two. And layer two actually makes the custom liquidity ranges a more useful feature because uh, now you can do more of these custom liquidity ranges, more active trading because you have more transaction throughput. And through that, it makes uh, the L2 version even more capital efficient than the L1 version. And it also gives like these pretty big competitive advantages, I would say, like, for example, uh, if SushiSwap would migrate to an L2 uh, to have a liquid market there, they have to migrate a lot of their liquidity by using the traditional like AMM model. Whereas Uniswap, you can migrate much less of the liquidity, and you'll have like these really these exchange markets that are that have very little slippage. So it actually makes the transition to L2 much easier, and it also makes and it's also uh, the L2 itself makes the market making strategies better. I want to zero in on some of the questions that we got from Twitter. Obviously, there's just an intense amount of interest, probably one of the most important developments of the year. But before we get into that, I want to know what you think this means from a competitive standpoint, right? I mean, Uniswap has kind of been the market leader, the dominant player in this space for a long time. So what do you think will be the reaction from some of the competitive DEXs? A lot of people have talked about how this is almost a dagger in the heart 
to Curve, how do you think Curve and other players respond? And is uh, sort of, you can think of it as a dagger in the heart for specific use cases, especially Curve that's sort of very hyper-optimized around this one use case that essentially now Uniswap does as well, or even better, to the current Curve design that is a real competitor. I think the defense from other AMMs is that they never actually wanted to go this route at all, which is they want to keep liquidity provision passive, whereas Uniswap has gone in the direction of the order book, which makes it more active. And their idea about improving capital efficiency is more about, okay, you have this extra capital in these pools. How can you use that, for example, on lending markets and make it more efficient by using the capital in that way? I think, and this is sort of a criticism that the V3 design has gotten, but to sort of address that people uh, like, for example, on MakerDAO, now you can take out DAI by putting these Uniswap uh, liquidity provider tokens and minting DAI against that. So essentially you're taking leverage, a leverage bet on top of your liquidity position. And for example, now on Uniswap, that becomes a bit more complex because the positions, they're different positions. They're not the same zero to infinity positions, but there are all these custom positions between that. And that makes it sort of more difficult because they're not fungible. You can't mint that as a single asset class, sort of have them as collateral to mint leverage against. And I think there, uh, what's misunderstood maybe is that the exchange tokens are only, va- or these LP tokens are only valuable because they generate fees on the exchange. And the exchange generates fees because it's an efficient market. It, basically, if you're unlocking leverage with this LP token and the exchange itself is not efficient and generating fees from trading activity, you're basically just holding to these two different assets and minting debt against that. So it's not like that really provides any sort of value. As an exchange, you have to optimize for trading volume. And uh, it's probably not the right move to just have this passive strategy and then uh, believe that you can find capital efficiency from some other places because now the core uh, function of your exchange is not that good because the best exchange sort of is the one where there's lowest slippage and you can have capital efficiency on it. What about... If we think about, you know, how difficult it is to copy a lot of the stuff that they've put forth here, you know, this is key to the DeFi story, this idea of, you know, folks swooping in and innovating on what works. So theoretically, right, you could have an anonymous or private actor come in and just like SushiSwap did over the summer, come in and rip this thing off. But there's this new license element that maybe makes it more difficult. How does that work? I think ultimately the license element makes it difficult in the sense that maybe teams with non-anonymous founders are less likely to try to rip it off directly. And then maybe like people are less willing to support uh, something like that as well. But ultimately, I think the license, it's a very sort of popular thing to talk about. But ultimately, I think it doesn't matter really that much in the sense that Crypto protocols won't be defended long term because of software licenses. They'll be sort of defended by other network effects. So I think that story gets a lot of play, but ultimately, I don't think it will be a big part of the long term story. Well, just because, first of all, you can't stop anyone from actually copying the marketplace, and you can always do these sort of vampire attacks uh, as well. 
because like if someone just anonymously copies the idea or the code, maybe the idea is a bit more complex now than the previous one because uh, the x times y equals k curve is sort of very simple to uh, implement in your own. And this one is like technically more complex, but uh, over like the longer term, you can copy the idea because you can just like do your own implementation of custom liquidity ranges if you want. So the question really becomes, I think, can Uniswap sort of do, and the Uniswap community, because now the token holders are more in charge of like the governance than ever because of the V3 launch, can the community sort of incentivize projects to bootstrap their liquidity on Uniswap? Uh, can they sort of with the massive treasury they have give grants to pe- for people to build stuff that actually locks in users into the ecosystem that Uniswap is building instead of some other AMM? I think the questions move really a lot more into the business development side and how Uniswap can defend itself through that uh, than just via this uh, license. Backed is the digital wallet of the future, empowering you to manage all of your digital assets from a single place. Backed puts the power in your hands to get your crypto, loyalty and rewards points and gift cards together to choose how you want to use them. Treat your digital assets just like cash and convert, send or spend them using Backed. Get started today and get it together with Backed. Available for download now in the App Store and Google Play Store. And I also want to take a moment to thank Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Whether it's your first trade or your 100th, Kraken has the tools to help you hit your financial goals in crypto. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week, and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. I want to go to some of those Twitter questions. As promised, this is one you responded to from at Finsk Antes, I guess you'd say it. How does the dynamic between LPs change? Example given is V3 making LPing drastically more competitive. Kind of talked about this at the beginning within the same pool, right? You kind of had everyone operating within the parameters of the same strategy. Now you have different strategies. Does this make the LP process more competitive and as a result, more rewarding economically? So I think, and this is maybe the most common and and sort of interesting criticism about this, and I'll try to sort of steel man the argument for why Uniswap v3 is bad here, but you can think of liquidity provision in a Uniswap v2 or SushiSwap as something where everyone converges on this one passive strategy where they provide liquidity. And you don't want to have this passive strategy because you'll sort of get your launch eaten by these active liquidity providers or providing within a specific range. And actually, because of this sort of game theory between people not wanting to really launch on Uniswap because they can't just passively easily provide that old liquidity range and just forget about it because these active LPs are taking all their fees, as a result, sort of no liquidity forms. And I think ultimately this position is something like saying that, do we want to restrict, are there benefits that from restricting every LP to the same strategy? where if the price sort of moves uh, against the market makers 
all the LPs sort of so- socialize the losses essentially between them instead of having these active market makers. And I would say that this is sort of wrong maybe on multiple levels where first thing to understand here is that bootstrapping new markets on Uniswap actually becomes easier because it requires less capital to do so. And I think the process will be much more something like organically these markets will form where they start from very simple strategies, but also strategies that are slightly more optimized than providing liquidity between zero and infinity. Maybe, for example, you can imagine a strategy, and I think this is the type of software people will be building on V3, which is you can have, for example, a a urine-style vault where we provide uh, most of our liquidity within 20% of some time-weighted average of the current price, Mm -hmm. and uh, the rest of our 80% of our liquidity we provide uh, in the infinite range. So we do we have this actually very useful strategy that we already can use to pack liquidity uh, to the right place. And that makes the market better because you have, again, more capital within that good price range. So I think that's sort of like uh, saying that liquidity, saying that liquidity won't form is sort of like saying, okay, this market won't receive liquidity because there are these LPs who will go there and provide better liquidity. And I don't mm-hmm. think that really... Uh, make sense as such. And actually, there are like these interesting cases where uh, bootstrapping a market on Uniswap is a lot easier because, for example, if you do a liquidity mining program where you want to get liquidity to a specific asset pair, it's actually much cheaper to do that because now, in the same way that the capital efficiency becomes more better from the LP side, it also becomes better for the project who is subsidizing that market as well because when they subsidize the market, the liquidity actually comes to the current price range, which means that they have to spend less money to get good liquidity for their asset. And also, I think there's this broader conversation to be had about passive versus active LPs that isn't as simple as active LPs just uh, being able to kill passive LPs and no one wanting to be a passive LP because active LPs, it's not something that's very easy or completely trivial to do. If you're an active market maker, you take on more price risk that's what it means to be active. And you create also more fees for yourself because you're trading more in and out. And just trading fees are non-trivial. You're paying 0.3% every time you want to change a position. Um, then there's also these, for example, on stable to stable coin swaps. If you just provide liquidity within a very tight range and assume these won't go out of that range, it's not like hyperactive LPs really have an advantage in that sort of market either. Uh, so I think... Ultimately, what will happen is that some very good active LPs will make more money, passive strategies, but also by having these urine-style vaults where you're able to make these quite sensible passive strategies, you will be able to be a part of the market-making process as well. I want to take a moment to zoom out a little bit. One person on Twitter asked about the broader implications of this for DeFi. Does this enhance the bull case? And what do you expect? to happen next in terms of maybe volumes, the size of this market? Does this mean that larger traders will be more incentivized to participate? What are you expecting there? I think this is why Uniswap really had nowhere to go in their design except move towards this sort of active liquidity provision, because that's something that works with traditional markets and should like an order book is a really good way to or structure a marketplace. So there wasn't really any direction to go if you want to make DeFi really big. 
and make decentralized exchanges really big as well. I think what this unlocks uh, next is the possibility to support just more volumes and really, especially in combination with the L2 launch, which hopefully comes very quickly after the L1 launch, uh, is to really start competing against centralized exchanges. I think uh, it's almost a miracle of decentralized exchanges to trade volumes about 7% of centralized exchanges in the crypto markets. If you think about that fact, that's actually sort of incredible, considering that uh, the it's so slow and the transaction fees are so high and so forth. And I think if you're able to start to compete on capital efficiency and and also in terms of like just the speed uh, on an L2 compared to centralized exchange, that's when you really start getting the most out of DeFi and seeing if it's possible for these DeFi systems to really start passing their centralized alternatives. And that's one aspect that's super important is that layer two implementation that's going to come later in May, which will decrease costs. That's the thing that we've been complaining about since... Well, we've, we've been complaining ad nauseum about it since the summer when gas fees really exploded. And and so, yeah, I mean, this is this is all about, we have options here. We have centralized options, decentralized options. To what degree would you say now, if we get that layer two support, we have this, this new outline, this new framework for the protocol, how much closer does it make the DeFi world to the CeFi world in terms of slippage? Trade execution, are they about the same now or do we still have some work to do? The answer is that uh, it gets a lot closer and that there's work to do. I think before we can say that, okay, DeFi is approaching uh, CeFi in these uh, different ways, uh, we have to see, and this is maybe the biggest question mark actually with Uniswap, uh, which is that how effectively does the migration uh, to L2 go to because we don't really, it's like the first time that it's sort of happening on Ethereum and there are all these uh, different things where people think that uh, an ecosystem, uh, that L2 migration won't be as simple as people think and and just is Uniswap able to pull the ecosystem in a direction where, okay, now the wallets start integrating uh, directly into L2, maybe centralized exchanges, they start integrating directly where users don't have to go through like the expensive Ethereum chain at all, and they can directly get to L2 to use DeFi. Uh, how, uh, and just these practical things, like for example, L2, uh, Optimism L2, it requires like this one week uh, period where between, uh, with uh, for deposits and withdrawal, uh, for withdrawals when you're coming out of the uh, optim- Optimism chain. And there, there are ways to hide that in the UX and people know what those ways are, but are those, like, will those tools be built very quickly, very well? All that sort of small work, but ultimately very big because there's lots of things to do across the ecosystem to get people to really onto L2s and make L2s have that uh, same experience that Ethereum now has, except with a lot lower gas fees. That's a process. And I think it will be very, very interesting to see when Uniswap V3 launches on Optimism, just knowing how well that process goes and, and seeing how much of the trade volume uh, migrates there, that, that will be really the key here, I think. And I know that you'll be watching it very closely with much excitement. 
Any closing thoughts, Miko? We want to keep this tight for uh, the listeners who are probably mostly in the DeFi space and probably have some sort of trade to put on. Um, I think this was this was the best I think Uniswap could have realistically done, given that they wanted to stay on Ethereum, given the constraints of Ethereum. And now it's really a very different product because now you it's not passive market making. It's passive market making from the most passive strategy all the way to like the most active one. And that will create a lot of opportunities in the ecosystem as well. I think now builders can be very excited because they can explore this entire design space uh, between like an order book and an AMM that wasn't available to them previously. And I think people will build like these very cool things on top. So I think this is actually a situation where a lot of new innovation that second order effects can happen from this. And I don't think we quite know what those are yet. And we shall see. Well, thank you so much, Mika. We'll have you on again soon, probably when we actually have this thing rolled out to talk about the launch and the ramifications 